So I'm very happy to be joined by Piers Taylor, who is an architect and former television presenter. Uh, and you've done a lot of work in TV and in architecture as well. Yeah. Um, tell us a bit about how you how you've found communicating architecture to the public generally through the work that you've done with TV and with other other mediums. That's a really interesting question. I think that you fall into communication as an architect anyway because very early on when you are presenting ideas the critical thing is finding the right language to be able to make other people understand what it is you're doing so i think that part of being an architect is being a communicator and i taught relatively early on in my own working life and part of my working with students, I was really interested in what language can I use to help people understand this thing? And I got into TV because my instinct with many things is to say yes to things and see where they take me. And I was asked to do TV at a time in my own life where I was setting up another practice and I wanted, you know, in terms of the hierarchy of things I wanted, I wanted autonomy from um, employing lots of people from a kind of day-to-day -day routine running an office and I also didn't want to do back extensions again when I was starting up another practice because you know I'd done bigger projects and I didn't want to go back to doing that and um, I was asked to co-present a series on BBC called The House That 100k Built and I think what was interesting about doing that was that in my mind there was very little on TV that dealt with design in the broadest sense of the word so you know you could buy a um well actually that's not quite true i think that there were things about design there was very little about architecture that was accessible and the way architecture was presented by programs like grand designs was that architecture was inaccessible you know it cost a lot of money it was something other people did typically things went wrong and you had no access to it because you know the majority of people if you look at the average income of 26 grand whatever it is couldn't afford to use an architect had no access to the world of architecture that was either um, defiantly kind of elitist and autonomous or was unaffordable always kind of luxury stuff you know yet you could go down the road and you could buy a great chair a great shirt you know a great pair of shoes a great anything you know great well-designed you know piece of tech anything so the attraction for the first series of the house that 100k book was that you know you could talk to people about design and show people that actually design wasn't about going shopping it wasn't about spending money and wasn't even about using nice materials it was just about the sensibility around how things went together um, in that context and in a way that was kind of empowering to be able to talk about that stuff and um be given the platform to do it and that was kind of interesting in some ways although one of the problems with it was that actually still what those people needed at the end of the day was an architect rather than the idea about how you did something they still needed architectural advice and my my nervousness at the end of it the end of doing kind of five series was that still architecture hadn't penetrated the mainstream you know mm. architects are still expensive architecture is still expensive and if we look at the mass market of what gets built typically architecture doesn't come anywhere near it you know the bulk of housing the bulk of um the public buildings that we all now go into the bulk of our infrastructure the railway buildings all of those kind of buildings architecture doesn't really go anywhere near so in a way my disappointment is that architecture hasn't yet infiltrated the mainstream Mm. Well, I think the house, the 100K built, definitely did something to sort of show that architecture isn't necessarily for 
just for the elites. And if anything, that's one sort of disservice that programs like Grand Designs have done to the public perception of architecture. It's kind of reinforced this idea that it's only for wealthy people or relatively wealthy people who can afford to do these one-off projects. That's and right. Actually, yeah. there's much more relevance to, to everybody, effectively. Yeah. I mean, this building was 15 grand, the building that we're in now. And that's with paying people. That's with using things that we bought. And... I was really genuinely interested, and I still am, in what can you do if you have limited means? You know, and I wanted here to build an office for less than the cost of a year's rent. So I think my last office was 17 grand a year to rent, and I didn't have much money. I was setting up again, and I wanted to build something cheap. And actually, the kind of empowerment that comes from doing things yourself doesn't typically sit comfortably with architecture where it's very formalized it's very protocol driven and it's very kind of professionalized mm. and yet you know if you're a musician you can you know you can make a record and you can put it out for next to nothing you know you can you know one of my daughters is 16 she's making her own film you know feature film you know blah 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 she's crowdfunded it's 1500 quid and with architecture the, the kind of freedom that comes with doing your own buildings that are very low cost is immense. So, you know, we've done this building, it was 15 grand. The toilet for this building cost nothing. You know, the other buildings we've done around here cost very little money. And for me, there's part of a interest in the architecture of frugality, but also this sense that architecture can be part of the everyday, which was I, I was really interested in. Yeah, well, I think it's... I mean, you, you'll know from your experience with these projects how cheap architecture can be if you want it to be. But obviously, most people don't perceive it that way. No. So how is it that we can educate everybody to a sufficient extent that the public are fully aware of that as an option of, of whether it's self-build or sort of cooperative employment of an architect for a small development or something like that? How do we get that into the mainstream of public consciousness? Again, I think it's a really good question because I think that architects are very bad at talking about what they do. And if we as a profession are asked to defend what we do, typically it comes down to aesthetics. It's like we have a more rarefied sense of aesthetic control than most other people. That's our kind of comfort zone. And of course, that's not true. I mean, what is interesting about what we do as architects is that we sit between lots of other things. Typically, in terms of this idea about communication, we can communicate to four or five or six or 10 groups of people from planners to engineers to clients to other collaborators, what it is we do and how we need to steer away through an immensely complicated set of constraints to end up with something that's used and loved. And I think that's a really kind of sophisticated thing to do because, you know, typically without wanting to, to do down engineers, you work in a, in a narrower, deeper field. And what we, we don't communicate what we do well enough, I think. That's the first thing. So it is perceived by many people that we squander money and we just add cost. You know, we add expensive fittings, expensive finishes. And, you know, so I think that I think we can't do it single-handedly. I think in a way we need to do it with people like house builders. So I think the way is the mainstream. So the way is not making one-off expensive houses. The way is to get people like Barrett's and Wimpy, Taylor Wimpy, to use architects to make what they do better. You know, what's really interesting about the infrastructure of the country as was is that it was really good. You know, Victorian housing was kind of good. It made good places. They're versatile, adaptive um uh, resilient buildings uh, that make communities make places and i think as architects we can help house builders understand that they don't need to spend any more money to make things that are better that affect the landscape of this whole country you know and i think we have to work in the mainstream 
I think the other place that we need to get involved with is in planning. And I think now planning is becoming interesting again. You know, so people like Vincent Lacrava, who worked for Croydon, now works for Enfield. There's people like Finn Williams who are going to public practice to kind of try and develop an idea that planning is where change happens as well. Because, of course, if you get planning right, the rest becomes a lot easier. Mm. Well, that's that's sort of the increasingly prevalent question at the moment with the, this new Building Beautiful Commission that the government's put forward about what the the role of planning or government regulation is in ensuring high design quality. So do you think that there's more of a role for legislation or legislators in that? And that sort of to what extent should they almost be telling architects what to do? Because I don't know about you, but my inherent sort of response to a, a legislative organisation saying you should design this this way or that way is who are you to tell me sure. how to design things that way? So what do you think the appropriate role is, if any, of legislation or, or regulation or, or design guides or anything like that in ensuring architectural quality on the mainstream? I think strategic plans are really important. So if you take a place like Holland, take a place like Almere, um, I think what's really interesting about that place is that the, the legislative framework for that was fantastic. The, there was a master plan that was delivered effectively. So there was a master plan that was commissioned by the government. The infrastructure was put in for that master plan, you know, the roads, the services. What the design code set out was not what the buildings needed to look like, but they set out where the edges were, where one, where one building met another, where one building met the street, and how high a building needed to be, you know, needed to be between three and five storeys. Pretty much everything else was up for... Uh, your own personal interpretation of whatever, you know, it could be about whatever you wanted. And the aesthetic control was not there. What was there was the sort of framework for you to do anything in. And what's really interesting is that, you know, you can see a really badly designed Barrett home next to a really good house designed by an architect. And as a place, the place is fantastic. And and it shows in a way that if you get the big picture right, you can kind of do anything. And mm -hmm. of course, that's how our towns and villages evolved historically. So we look at places like Saffron Walden or Lincoln, you know, where there's an eclectic mixture of buildings. There's a kind of rule where building meets street edge. There's a rule that building meets its neighbour. Those buildings make places. There's a good mix of density of buildings, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And individually, the buildings are very different from one another. And I think that is what we have lost the ability to understand. So now planners try and control things they're not versed in, which is design, whereas actually they should say, we get this bit right, you can design anything and it'll work. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I think we're sort of so used to the sort of homogenous estates of the sort of 60s, 70s and 80s that have sort of no architectural diversity effectively, that there's we've sort of lost the knack of having, like you say, the sort of more medieval style cities where there's a, a mix of housing styles and shapes and sizes from across the centuries, all in one place. And the, the, the sort of the, the urban effects and the effects of the actual planning might even matter more than the actual architecture itself, aesthetically. I think that's right. I think the, the urban move of what we do is more important than individual buildings. So our local town here is Bath. And on one, on one hand, it's a very homogenous city. But on the other hand, if you made all those buildings out of brick, put PVC windows in, the place would still be fantastic because it's a series of places that are human scale. You can walk from one side to the other. The buildings are very democratic because the expensive houses are the same as the low cost houses in terms of the way they look. And, you know, there's no kind of hierarchy of building other than one's mm. a bit bigger, you know. And um, it happens actually that it's homogenous, which is why simple rules are really hard because Bath is a relatively homogenous city and it works really well. 
But actually, I would say that is subservient to an idea about urbanism and about people-sized spaces, about road edges, about buildings making streets, about buildings making squares, about a network of spaces that have a different scale, you know, in, in the city and so on. And, you know, and I've thought about this quite a lot in some ways in, you know, traveling through Europe when you'll see villages in landscape that from a distance look amazing. You know, they're dense. The landscape is completely open and unspoiled. The villages are dense and together the landscape and the town will make, you know, a place. But when you go to the village, there's no really special buildings and they're all, they're all built in a kind of ad hoc way, jumbled together. But because of the density and the consistency of street edge neighborliness, the place is great, you know. Mm. Well, yeah, it's, it's it's strange where you get that sort of, like you say, with Bath, somewhere like Bath or somewhere, I think, of places like Venice or Siena or any of these ones where there's a clear homogeneity of mm. the architecture, mm. but then a, a diversity within that mm. and a variety within that, somewhere like Amsterdam as well, where you've got mm. very, very different buildings, but they all sort of conform to the same set of rules on the same kind of plan. And it's almost as if there's a, there's like a sweet spot of a balance between sort of the laissez-faire idea of build what you want and a set of sort of rules effectively that build in that coherence into a place. That's right. I, th I think the, I think planning has become too concerned with the micromanagement of issues that are outside a planning officer's range of experience. You know, so typically they are aesthetic police. And, you know, and I've had the most absurd conversations with planners about the, the sort of aesthetic reading of a building where they really are unable to make judgments. And in a way, I don't think they should be making those judgments because if, again, if policy was written in such a way that you knew what you could build in a place and as a professional, you were trusted to build something that was appropriate, actually the constraint is where it goes and what the edges are and what the place it makes are. And I think buildings generally have a responsibility to something else other than themselves. So in a, in a town, in a village, a building has a response, and in a landscape, a building has a responsibility to its place more than it does to itself. You know, so it's to its neighbour, to its street, to its, you know, to its context. It's a two-way responsibility. And that, those are the things that I think really need to be understood. And I think, you know, the other problem, of course, with the way that we design and the way that most policy is written is that it refers to a period in history that is relatively short. So most planning documents refer to um, the architecture, the vernacular of a place. And yet that vernacular was defined from about, you know, 1700 to about 1900, maybe from, you know, a little bit outside that. And forevermore, we are tied into that response to that place, those materials, those way of the, those ways of making settlements, but actually, you know, architecture is bigger than that. And how can we break free, break free from one way of doing things? How can we develop a new vernacular? And one way is that we are freer to respond to things in a very direct, ad hoc, intuitive way, rather than the kind of top-down planning officer-led reading of what belongs in a place. Mm. Do you think that's going to instill the enough a sufficient level of homogeneity, though, or will you end up with um, like like these big self-build projects where you end up with such a 
difference in what's built there that it seems almost chaotic. You end up with a sort of Las Vegas-esque kind of situation. Well, the problem with those places are that the one building doesn't meet the next, you know. Mm. And, um, you know, and the, the places, the self-built communities that, you know, Graven Hill, I think, is one. And, you know, there's a couple in Bristol. The problem with those places is that the buildings don't make a place. You know, the buildings are suburban little things drop down in a, mm. you know, in a, in a park. And there isn't a responsibility for any building other than do something for itself. But as soon as you have a rule that every building must address a street and must join its neighbour, make a terrace or make a place, make an edge, make a square, make a park, make a backdrop to something, the the what it's like becomes less important. And maybe, you know, maybe there is that question of maybe you... I think in a way, I think it's a tension because I'm not necessarily suggesting you should be able to do anything anywhere. But one of the interesting dilemmas for us as architects is that historically we used to just be able to take the material from the ground and use it above ground and you would have a kind of reading of a place. So we live here on a kind of limestone scene, that, you know, the southern end of the Cotswolds and it goes all the way up through the Cotswolds right up to the wash. And, you know, if you build anywhere on that seam, historically it was kind of limestone. And, you know, that's the same whether you're on clay or chalk, you know, and flint. And it's a really amazing reading of place. And I think that those things are immensely important. Difference, regional identity is really, really important. And one of the things that concerns me is regional identity has been kind of commandeered by the right. You know, so in a way, um, nationalism is a kind of right wing thing. And yet I know that it's really important that things and places have their own regional identity. But one of the tensions that I have is that, like many architects, I don't quite know what the appropriate response post-industrial revolution, when we can do anything anywhere, is. When we can do anything, what is it mm. that we do do? And I don't know really yet. I think we're all kind of feeling our way with this stuff, realising in a way that... The international style got a lot of things wrong because, you know, it wasn't interesting that a building was the same here as it was in the, you know, in Nevada. And it wasn't, you know, and we were losing something because things that tell us about places are really, really interesting, I think. Mm. Well, is that, I think you're absolutely right. And there's, I mean, you mentioned the sort of the commandeering of the, the, the sense of local identity by the right. But, and, and there's sort of a, a tension on the left between the, uh, the sort of Ruskinian and Morrisian interpretation of post-industrial, almost return to craft kind of thing, uh, versus the globalist, international style kind of utopian ver version of, of a left-wing interpretation, I guess, of that. Um, and I, I think you're right. I mean, I'm I'm a fan of um, Kenneth Frampton's critical regionalist approach to this, mm. that that the architecture should reflect its regionality. Mm. But but it is difficult when you can source your bricks from Holland and your trees from Poland and you have things from all over the world. How is it therefore justifiable to actually reflect the locality and therefore and what locality are you reflecting is it 100 years ago is sure. it 300 years ago is it a thousand sure. years ago um and bucket does deals with this to a certain degree i mean i studied originally in australia you know when in my part one and um studied with Merkert, glenn Merkert, and um you know he is really interested in place and but the kind of ultimate look of the building is kind of incidental he would argue because if you actually are working in a place like Australia that has relatively few vernacular buildings in the way that we know um, that word, then what he responds to is the bigger picture of landscape, you know, the, the, the kind of sense of place, the climate, the weather, the region, the territory, the ground conditions, the, you know, the, the flora, the fauna. And 
develops a way of building that is much more in tune with a place than a kind of fake limestone building in the Cotswolds, you know. And I think for me, that is the way forward. So when we deal with vernacular now, I think we need to deal with more than what a building looked like 200 years ago. And I would argue that this building is a vernacular building. This uses material that was grown on this site. It uses labour that existed in this valley, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I would argue the same about the house that we built, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, that that just looked in a very direct way at the kind of sheds, the barns. It looked at what material I could get. And in fact, it uses, you know, B&Q, um, you know, the same material as a B&Q shed in our local town. And yet I think those things are vernacular, you know, and vernacular is a kind of living thing and it develops and it changes and it moves around and you can't kind of pin it down. You know, it's very hard to put rules in place about a vernacular. You know, when we made these vernacular buildings here 200 years ago, we weren't thinking we need to be vernacular. We, we had the freedom to be very direct and intuitive in our responses to things and do what, you know, in this context, rural contexts always did, which is just use the materials and the labour they had and not try and in a way be too clever. And I think what I what I enjoy about the buildings that we've done here is that they are just part, they feel for me, and maybe it's a kind of conceit, but they feel like part of this place. They were made with the farmers and my neighbours and they have no idea or no consideration that these things are architecture. They've done buildings that are kind of, you know, adaptions of these buildings and they see no difference between their buildings and my buildings. They're just part of a way that rural people make stuff. They use what they have, they look at other things, they adapt things and change things in a very unprecious way. And I enjoy that way of working, really. Mm. Well, I think it's when when you're in a situation like this where you can take that approach, where you've got this almost the luxury of being able to use materials that are literally from the site or certainly from very nearby, that there's sort of, it's an easy answer kind of thing. But it's, it becomes much harder when you're thinking about when you're building a big apartment complex in London, say. Like, what does vernacular mean then? Does it mean a, a sort of general interpretation of all of architectural history in that place and do you have to to what extent do you have to source your materials locally for example for it to be vernacular when it's cheaper to go to wix than it is to do anything else and get just a brick that was made hundreds of you know miles away and i think that's really interesting i mean i you know i went to spain recently and there was a project that was made out of um, basalt that was you know it's kind of basalt is um, their material in that context and yet it was cheaper for them to go to get that from Mongolia you know and and I think that but I think in in an urban context I think that the 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 Wix is the kind of new vernacular you know using stuff that comes from a you know from a, from your local whatever it is those I mean Wix isn't a very good example because actually the materials generally are so kind of rubbish but you know in a way maybe it ties into a, a, a you know a kind of I suppose a modernist ideal about um, mass production and and in a way it's fine to use things that are off the shelf and ordinary and quite banal. But the technique of how you use them and how they're arranged, and that's where the architecture comes in. So I think you probably can do a really good building, just going to Wix, taking that crap off the shelf and using it in a very direct way in a street in London. I think mm. it's not just the material, it's also the sensibility around how it's used, how it's put together, how it's occupied, how it's lived in, how it adapts over time. You know, those kind of things make the vernacular, not a single intent, a single design intent that is finalised. And architecture deals with 
the issue of the kind of point of conclusion in a very kind of dogmatic way. You know, there's one vision for a building, it's set out, it's concluded, it's complete, and typically it's frozen and photographed. Buildings are kind of bigger than that and better than that. And I think that we develop a sense of a building over time, how it's been adapted, how it's evolved, and then a vernacular emerges. I think you don't design a vernacular. And things emerge in a very loose, ad hoc way um, that has a sort of temporal um, relationship, I think. Yeah, well, I, it's good that you mentioned sort of emergence as, an, as a concept, because I think that's fundamental to what's lacking in architecture at the moment, in a way that when we talk about the vernacular, it is an emergence of a a form of architecture, both stylistically and in terms of materials from a particular place in a particular context. And I'm sure you'd argue that this is exactly that. Um, and so I think in terms of the sort of referencing back to Wix, do you think that it's even if everyone in almost in the entire world had access to the same sort of standard McDonald's kind of materials type thing, standardized materials, how you interpret those is as important as what the yeah. materials actually are. Almost more important, I would say, than what the materials actually are now. Um, you know, and those places are the kind of McDonald's of the building industry. And, you know, and I think that what I really like about architectural education is that it's an education of a training. And, you know, if you'd never seen a brick before, you'd have no idea how to use it. And typically you come out of architecture school not knowing what to do with a brick, really. And that's why young architects do interesting work. And, you know, I think, you know, you, you look at someone like Rural Studios work and they do amazing things with kind of broken blocks and carpet tiles or whatever. And I think you can use the most ordinary things in a really unusual and inventive way. You know, I mean, a friend of mine who's a um, friend of mine is a fashion designer and she wore a bin bag, you know, black bin bag, you know, recently. And I, I showed a photograph of she happened to be in a photograph and I showed it to another person. And he said, God, I bet that person's a fashion designer. I'm like, how do you know? And he's like, I can tell by the way she wears the bin bag, you know. So, of course, and I think if we expand this, what I was really interested in was the question that Carl Andre raised in his piece, Equivalent 8, that he did at the Tate, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And it was a stack of bricks on the ground. And there's a whole book that was written about it, which I've got. It's one of my favourite books. And the title of the book is Art or Bunk. Is this art or is it bunk? And people were outraged when he did this piece because, you know, the material was just standard bricks, standard fire bricks, the most cheapest bricks that you could get. The arrangement of the bricks was banal some people argue they were just stacked up in a kind of row and it wasn't even an authentic piece because it you know when he did it in another city he would just go and get some bricks from somewhere and make the same piece you know so it didn't have a it wasn't an original work in some ways and yet clearly it was asking big questions and clearly fitted into the canon that we call art and so the question that we have is is it the material that makes it art is it the the sensibility around it is it the arrangement of it what is this thing that makes it architecture which is the same thing and kate who i work with asks this question quite a lot so the barn that we did up here called we call it the ghost barn in a very kind of um you know uh, pretentious way and <laughs> and my neighbor did a similar building you know further up and it has the same brief it uses similar materials. It has the same arrangement on site. And Kate makes the distinction that one is architecture, mine, and one isn't. And it's, you know, it happens to be my neighbours and it happens also that he's not an architect. Why? What is it that makes one architecture and one not architecture? Mm. You know, it isn't, obviously isn't the materials. And it's not the, you know, it's, I think it is the sensibility. And I think that, you know, I think really the sensibility around what you do is much more important than the thing itself. 
And, you know, and I, and I was kind of fascinated by, you know, I sat in on a planning committee meeting the other day here for a building. And somebody was talking about this amazing building, you know, that was built. And it was a kind of fake Georgian mansion built, you know, so, and he's it, it because it used a quality material. But of course, it's a horrendous piece of architecture that destroys its landscape, you know. So sensibility, I think, is everything in some ways. Mm. Well, there's almost it seems to me that there's this constant sort of shifting between the the highly refined sort of what we got at the end of the 19th century kind of thing and then the the parody of that and the the reaction to that so like Michel Duchamp's fountain and the like you say the bin bags and that kind of thing and then once once anything has been around too long it becomes a parody of itself and I think maybe we're getting to that stage with a lot of the sort of reactionary mostly modernist art and architecture sure. that it's happening so often that it's no longer shocking and it's yeah. becoming a parody of itself and becoming banal and people are gradually starting to revert back to wanting mm. things that are more refined. But I'm also really suspicious of our own fetishization of material, you know, and um, and control, this sort of, you know, um, fascist way that we make buildings. And, you know, the first sort of reasonable building that we did as a practice, which was Room 13 in Bristol, was a building that I remember going to this lecture and it was by a partner in a big practice. And he talked with pride about such was his ability to control materials and relationships that he sent a builder bankrupt. It was almost a lesson to build a bankrupt. He hadn't succeeded because he, he had won, you know, this kind of middle-aged white man had kind of suppressed the kind of ignorant, you know, tradesperson through his, you know. And I, I just was, uh, you know, so kind of, I think, affected by that. And so when we did this building in Harkliff, you know, we made it out of concrete block and blue plastic and Velux windows. And we then we used trades that just existed locally, you know, men in white vans that could do stuff. And there were no shadow gaps. There was no sort of fetishizing of sort of architecture and yet I think we made a really interesting piece of architecture that affected that place and affected the people and I think that you know and I and I think and in a way it comes back to the kind of the kind of lo-fi thing and I mean the way I talked about it earlier is that I talked about it earlier is the kind of um the the kind of the empowerment that you get through doing things yourself I think I I have always been suspicious of the reverence that we give um, the received works in architecture. Everyone obsesses over Mies. Everyone obsesses over Zumter. You know, I think Zumter is a bit of a fuckwit. You know, I don't think he's a very nice person. I think that his buildings are quite obvious. And in a way, I think his way of working is the most straightforward way of working within architecture. This is kind of what an architect does. He's like a parody of an architecture, of an architect. And consequently, the work isn't even that original, you know. And it's like so many of us aspire to that way of working, you know, oh, craft, control, you know, detail, making, you know, and I, I just think, actually, don't we want something else than that way of just doing something, you know, and, and similarly with me's, I mean, you know, if you ask an architect, if you ask an architect what's good about the um uh, you know the barcelona pavilion they'll say oh god it's the control you know it's a grid within a grid within a grid i mean and i actually you know uh, that's just quite obvious that way of controlling materials and space is 
so obvious and we're still kind of obsessing around it, you know, hundreds of years on, you know, and I like things that surprise us and reinvent things and challenge us and actually don't necessarily um, conform to a kind of received way of doing things. And I would argue that Zumta is the most conformist architect we have, his most obvious architect, the most, you know, um, it's the most ordinary way of doing architecture, I would say. Mm. Yeah, I think, well, again, referencing back to emergence, what we've lost is that, like you said, that sort of low resolution idea of what it is that we're actually building in the in previous sort of decades gone by, it used to be that you design up to a certain point and then from there be, there onwards, it was up to the tradespeople to interpret what it was that you designed and to execute it to the best of their ability with some degree of creativity themselves. That's right. I mean, in a way, that's what Ruskin did. I mean, although Ruskin, you know, um, was clearly a kind of reactionary um you know conservative figure i think that he was obsessed by the idea of the gothic and what he liked about the gothic was this idea of the savage and the savage was the hand of the workman you know so there was a loose system with which he made a building and actually within that you could make mistakes you could interpret stuff you could bodge stuff you could fail and all that would could, could be evident in the reading of the building and it was kind of fine and, you know, that is the logic of this building, is that the mistakes, the, the this was made by unskilled people. And, you know, if you look around, you can see all the bodges that haven't worked. You can see the kind of learning um, journey of the people that made this building because they didn't know how to make things. And actually, I would argue that although this isn't a particularly accomplished piece of architecture, the architecture as it is, is given to you by that quality of those mistakes, by the kind of non-conformist relationships that the building has. And, you know, I think that, you know, we look back within contemporary architecture, there is a place where that can happen. You know, I think that the Smithsons were reasonably good at acknowledging that that could happen. And they were perhaps some of the most interesting modernists, you know, and um, clearly there are other architects, you know, that can do that. But I also am really interested in this idea that, you know, architects are very good at putting a little fence around this thing we call architecture. And anyone that isn't an architect is kind of pounced on, you know. So although I don't really like his work, John Pawson is always described as John Pawson. He's not actually an architect. Thomas Heatherwick, he's not actually an architect. You know, and then God forbid that you should not be an architect, but you should dare to make a building. Yet most buildings are made by non-architects. And if we look around us historically, most of the most interesting buildings are made by non-architects. You know, the tithe barns down the road, the Dutch barns, the sheds, the farmhouses, the village houses, the townhouses, you know, they were built by in, in our town by speculative developers. And there's very little evidence of architects doing anything in this landscape that's any good at all. And yet we presume that we are the only people that are able to make these things, you know. Um, and I really think that's fascinating. Yeah, well, we've again, we've moved from the system where you'd have sort of pattern books and that kind of thing, or, ba or sort of standard layouts that would be interpreted by local contractors and tradespeople and executed to a system where sort of the architect has to be supervising the whole time or the, or the main contractor has to execute things exactly as they've been designed right up to the tiniest detail. And we've lost, I think, that, that sort of, like you say, unexpected nature of what might emerge out of a building at the sort of the smaller detail level. I mean, some of it is, is because we put in place systems of control. So as we became professionals, you know, and professionalized our own institutions, we put in place systems of control that 
made sure um, others could do things as we wanted. But as we have become more adversarial, you know, and contract based, it means that we have to describe everything in advance of the act of construction itself, because things can't change. There's no mechanism of cost control or cost certainty if things change. But instead of thinking, okay, that's a bit inconvenient, you know, how can we change the way that we design buildings? We've just sort of accepted that we need to become more controlling, more kind of only retentive, and more sort of obsessing, more more obsessive around making sure that our way, which is defined in advance of construction, is the only way. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely right. And it's... I suppose it's difficult because with the rise of technology, it's increasingly easy to design things to the tiniest detail from the very beginning before you go anywhere near a site. And yet, if you're a cook, you know, you would never, you write a recipe, but actually you, there's, you know, hundreds of ways of interpreting a recipe and bringing in judgment and, you know, and equivalently, if you're a musician, you know, the kind of improvisation around that piece is potentially huge. You know, some musicians will never play the same piece twice. And for me as an architect, one of the things that I've become increasingly interested in is the kind of um, empowerment that you gain through leaving certain things open when you build something. And we, as an organization, have built quite a lot of our own buildings, uh, including this one, of course, the house, and all the buildings that we've done here have been our, you know, and and I, I have close relationships now with a lot of people that build the things that we've done, the buildings at Westonbert, all those kind of buildings. And one of the things I enjoy most is knowing, in a way, the people that I'm going to be working with, and then putting in place a kind of outline strategy that sets up the big picture of what you're going to do, and then leaving open this idea of agility and being confident that you can explore things as they emerge and weave them into your narrative. And of course, it changes how you draw, changes what you design, changes how you communicate with other people, changes what you give other people to build with. And those are the ways that or the things that we explore in this summer school program that we run, you know, Studio in the Woods, where, you know, 10 or 15 really diverse practitioners from Studio We through to Johnny Botsford, through to Meredith Bowles, through to Neil McLaughlin, through to us. They all work in a very different way. But one of the things that I think unites us is that the process of construction, the process of making can offer something to the architecture. Mm. And do you think that's something that's missing from education generally, architectural education? Like what, to what degree is architectural education or any changes in it responsible for the changes in how architects perceive their sort of their role or their their place in the construction process? I think on one hand, architectural education is amazing. I mean, it's an amazing time. I had a great time in my part one, not in my part two, actually, curiously. But I think it's amazing because it is an education generally. Um, I think that there is a big separation between architecture, architectural education and practice, though. And I think, you know, I went to this thing recently at Cardiff, and I think something like 80 or 90 percent of students were disappointed when they went to work in practice because they felt that their own knowledge, their own skills weren't valued. They weren't listened to. They weren't, you know, um, respected for what they could bring. And they found the work quite banal in some ways as well, which I can kind of understand and sympathize with. Um, I think the problem with architectural education in terms of things that I'm interested in is that it's fairly conservative in terms of what it teaches you about 
the identity of an architect. You know, the architect is this professional figure that controls things in advance of construction. And we have an office that's kind of one way of doing architecture. You know, we go up and down the country and go into most offices that are architects. They're kind of the same place. Most architects' websites are the same, you know. And we the conversations are fairly predictable in terms of the things that people care about. And I think in a way we're doing ourselves a disservice because, of course, you can be an amazing architect and never build anything. You can be an amazing architect, deal with strategy, deal with education, deal with policy, deal with planning, deal with change, deal with environment. And or you can be an architect that kind of makes stuff. So I don't think architectural education is broad enough at all on one hand. And I think that part two is more of part one. You know, you design a bigger building, you just do it in a bit more detail. I don't really think it's research. Um and I think, you know, I've been looking with other people at how that might change. And one of the things that we've been doing with Robert Mull, who used to be head of London Met, is now head of Brighton, is this idea of the global free unit where you are already an autonomous creative individual before you go into um, university. But then from a number of institutions around the world, you can pick and choose your own education and you get credits for various things that you do, depending on where you do them. So Studio in the Woods has credits, you know, so you can be at okay. university somewhere, you can come mm. and come, you know, take time out of your degree in Helsinki and come and, you know, do Studio in the Woods and get some credits and get back to your degree. But in an ideal world, you should be able to pick and choose far more of what you do, you know, as an architect, I think, mm. um, and not do this one thing, which is, you know, year one is fairly broad, you know, year two is doing something else, year three, you design a building for your degree, you know, and it's, it's fairly banal in some ways, I think that. And yeah. of course, down to this idea about making, I mean, I, and, and, you know, university generally, you, you never do anything that's full scale, you never do anything that's full size, you never really work on a building, you never, you never build anything, you never see or inhabit or occupy the thing that you are designing, I think. And I think that's a big shame. Yeah, well, it's, just, it's such a difficult tension, isn't it? Because there's so much, because architecture is a sort of a generalist profession but also with a few specific subsets of very specific skills it's difficult to fit all of that into a curriculum and to sort of build in the right sort of business skills and and people skills and contract knowledge and design knowledge and and construction knowledge all these things that you've got to fit into this educational sort of parameters that's right of x number of years and there's always that inherent contradiction and, and sort of tension between those things and i find it interesting how there's now the the um the new apprenticeship route that sort of come back in since sort of coming from where architecture always was as an apprenticeship kind of route from sort of decades and decades ago. I mean, ago. you know, it costs you 100 grand to be an architect and you'd never earn 100 grand as an architect, really, unless you're very lucky. And I think, you know, some some people understandably think, well, actually, why would I go back to university, spend another nine grand a year to be two years doing a master's and get myself more into debt where I could go and learn by osmosis in, you know, a really good office. And I think apprenticeships in part two are really interesting, actually, really interesting ways of, you know, um, uh, of studying architecture. And I think, you know, at best practice actually is still, although I've been kind of critical of practice, practice is an amazing environment in some ways. I mean, in that um, you are surrounded by people that really love what they do. You're surrounded by um, people that understand the context within which you work deals with an extraordinary range of activities from kind of legal contractual stuff through to kind of, you know, the poetics of how you do something and kind of everything in the middle. And I think, you know, you learn such a lot from the kind of the cut and thrust of practice that finding a formal way that it can be part of your education, I think, is a is a really good thing, actually. And of course, I think it's really good that there is an implicit understanding that practice is a place where people are learning about stuff.
Mm. Well, I'm, I, the only sort of side of the the apprenticeship route that I sort of am vaguely nervous about is to what extent will you be able to learn the more academic, conceptual, philosophical, historical kind of stuff in a practice setting where there's always a door schedule to be done or something like that? Like, are you, is, are you potentially going to miss out on those things that you would only really learn in an academic environment? Potentially, yes, and I think that's the problem. Um, and that's why the part one is such an amazing thing. And I think that that's why during your part two, I think that ability to be free from the constraints of doing that door schedule or gutter detail or having to deliver a piece of work that has a commercial kind of, um, you know, uh, consequence, you must have that freedom not to do that. And I think that for me, the most important thing in architecture is that big philosophical inquiry, you know, and I, what I love about architecture is that, you know, when you, someone who's not an architect asks you about architectural education, they're always really surprised that you are never taught how to make anything. And actually, really, you're just taught how to think about things. And although I'm critical about making, I mean, really, what I'm interested in making is the kind of philosophy of making, not, you know, how do you put a brick on top of one another? So for me, the philosophy of um, why we do what we do, how we make decisions about anything, how do we define points in space when there are, you know, um, millions of ways, infinite ways of arranging stuff. How how do we consider those things is the most important thing in an architectural education. You take that away and you're lost, I think. Yeah, well, I've been increasingly sort of struck, look, especially looking at a lot of the master's level work at various schools, that there's more and more of a focus on the sort of socio-political agenda within a project as the sort of the core component of value and assessment yeah. over and above architectural quality or execution. And I'm not convinced that's a good thing, particularly. I always think if you gave a set of master's students the, the project of building a house, a four-bedroom house on a boring site, like to, to excel within a, a context of mediocrity is much harder than to design a spaceport on Mars or something like completely, that. Completely. And, and so do you think that there's, there sort of needs to be a, a sort of bringing back down to earth of a lot of the high level academic stuff to ensure that sort of architecture students are actually producing high quality architecture and not just trying to sort of redesign the whole world? To a certain degree, yes. I mean, I think, you know, in a way, I, I was critical of Bath's end of year show last year or the year before I kind of wrote about it for something or other. And, you know, my worry about that is that most projects were kind of this idea of the retreat. So you have to go to a special place away from everyday life to be able to do architecture. You know, it comes back to that thing that we talked about at the beginning. But actually, you know, and I kind of wrote, well, why can't we actually be designing bus stations and railway stations and the places that we actually occupy on a day-to-day -day basis, you know? And so on one hand, I think the physical fabric of buildings needs to be addressed in the everyday. On the other hand, as well, I think at the other end of architecture, there is denial of the object. There's just thinking, well, actually, community action is, you know, is architecture. And I think to a certain degree, I, I'm supportive of that. But I resist denying the importance of the object, resist denying the importance of the thing that we occupy, the thing that marks a kind of civilization, the thing that makes places is, I think, really, really important. And, you know, that we lose that at our peril. I mean, you know, I'd say the building is, is the most powerful physical manifestation of you know human existence and an expression of everything that it means to be human everything that it means to uh, everything that a place means and everything that kind of history means is expressed through our buildings 
And for me, they're also the, the places that we communicate ideas and we do explore what it means to do anything. And I think that we need to weave other ways of, or, or weave into that ways of relating to people, ways of relating to places, community strategies and all the other stuff. But I think we we mustn't lose this understanding of how important the building is you know, and in a way, the problem with a lot of community architecture in the 60s was a sense, well, the building doesn't really matter. You know, you put in place a strategy for people to become empowered, then it doesn't really matter what we build. You know, you can build some crap and it's fine. But actually, it kind of isn't, you know, because I think you can do both. I think you can empower people, people, communities, ordinary people who are not architects, who, are, who want to do things for themselves. And you can allow them, support them to do extraordinary things, you know. And I think the two can kind of coexist. Mm. Well, it's just... Again, we're sort of back onto the idea of community engagement or public engagement in architecture, aren't we? Mm. I think just one more point on the education thing. The point I've had from a few people is the lack of historical um, education mm. within architectural education at the moment and the sort of the inability of students to understand sort of the historical context or even know the vocabulary. Like, do you think that's something that's missing or needs to be increased to some extent in architectural education? Yes, I do. I mean, I think it's a good question of how how does it exist? Because there's so many things we need to kind of learn. And, you know, certainly my own architectural education started at about 1920, you know, and um, I don't think really ever there was any consideration for anything that kind of existed in prehistory. But, you know, for me, as I get older, I like old buildings more and more and more because they're less predictable than new buildings. You know, you can't see the hand of a single author. You know, the spaces are so kind of anarchic, you know, it, there's no conformity with opening or, you know, I mean, now every door is 2100 by, you know, 910. And there was no such thing as standardization, even in a kind of, you know, a row of houses that were kind of similar. So um, I think that the, the, the history, what has been done before is so kind of rich and fascinating. And in a way, I think the history is taught very badly because if it is taught, it's kind of the formal things of, you know, who did what when and the kind of, you know, the big, um, you know, names that existed from, you know, the Renaissance on, particularly, you know, Palladio or whoever. But for me, the, the, the kind of the, the subtleties of history and finding out how things were and why things were isn't really something that we engage with as part of our education. So I, I really do feel that we should do more of that, yeah. Mm. I mean, you mentioned standardisation. One of the things that I'm increasingly worried about is that sort of the the ever greater march of regulations and building regulations and that kind of thing, which usually exists for good reasons, results in this mass standardisation of architecture. And now, especially with things like off-site manufacturing, you're getting a an even ever greater homogenization of the sort of the forms and the, the structures of architecture. And then there's this sort of facadism that comes up, especially in sort of projects in cities. And the, if, instead of using the technologies that we have to sort of create mass customization and contextual relevance, like you've done here, an emergence from place and from context, we're actually getting the opposite. We're getting almost a reinforcement of what the international style did in a, a mass, mass standardization and factory production of the same architectural elements. Um, and then, as I say, the sort of facadism that you get that's very superficial and not really, doesn't really consider the whole of the building in an emergent or a contextual sense like do you think there's a there's a danger that the sort of technological advancements like um like that like uh, off-site manufacturing will lead to that 
mass standardization? To a certain degree, yes, I do. And I, but I think, you know, I suppose the optimist in me hopes that as we develop strategies for, say, low energy buildings where we need to respond to places climatically, and we can't just presume the same controlled internal environment, you know, we have to understand thermal mass, ventilation, sunlight, daylight, you know, weather, rainfall, all of those things. And if we understand those things, that's how we make site-specific and place-specific buildings and you know and in a way it's what we used to do effortlessly you know you go to Marrakesh buildings are close together they have courtyards they sell shade they do all sorts of things and there's no standardization even if you know the materials are effectively standardized and if we presume that every building is sealed every building is um, you know a controllable internal environment by you know uh, heat recovery system or whatever and I think that is a problem you know um, because it means that you can design the, the same building um, here as you do you know this is a benign you know maritime you know climate as you do in the north of Scotland or in Scandinavia but actually buildings in Scandinavia can look different in a very straightforward way because they need you know to deal with a more extreme climate and they can't have such big openings and they need to deal with snow they do maybe need eaves or whatever it is and uh, and and i think that you know weather climate place are so important for our built environment and um I think I, I think instinctively as human beings we look for the the soulful and the kind of poetic and and I I think that there is there will be a place where the kind of default lowest common denominator is the kind of standardized building but the optimist in me as I said hopes that as people really understand what it means to make everywhere the same we will understand the significance of intelligent buildings that that tell us stories about places mm. and do you think it, whose sort of role is it to interpret what the sort of the vernacular or the, or the the local reference is is that the architects as the primary role or is there a sort of a local democratic role or a lo or a public role mm. to define what that is in any given place. So it's, it's a really interesting question, and I think that it's a very difficult answer, though, because I think I think things happen through conversation, and I think that you know, in buildings happen through conversation, you know, and I think. I remember, you know, my kids would always say, oh, have you designed a building today? And I go, what do you mean? And what they mean was have I sat down and drawn something? And, you know, but I'd say, oh, I've had lots of conversations with people and that's design. And I think, you know, things happen. Societies are made, civilizations are made in such a kind of um, messy way that we only really make sense of them in hindsight, you know. And I actually don't think there will ever be a clear way that we make a vernacular. Now we know what we're doing. This is our idea of vernacular. Now we're going to roll it out. I think we'll always make messy things and understand them in hindsight. And I think we're always pushing and pulling at the edges of what we do and always trying to engage with different things. And what I like about architecture is that there actually isn't an edge to it. You know, there isn't a point where actually one thing stops being architecture and starts being something my neighbor built. You know, there's a whole messy set of interrelationships that um, that kind of coexist. So I think we'd make you know, the forces that act on the built environment are immense. You know, the money, their land ownership, their history, they are weather, their politics, their planning, their architects, their speculators. There's so many things that we can't control all of those things. We just kind of muscle in and do our bit and rub up against all those other things and 
things have out of the end of it falls some stuff that we make sense of many years later yeah well as we hear the rain coming down <laughs> on the roof yeah it's um it, one of the things that i think good architecture does and more good vernacular architecture does is connect with its natural environment and its natural systems around it very well and obviously this is it's very easy here for you to do that being in the middle of the woods um and having the sort of raw vernacular kind of building but how do you think we can sort of take what like you mentioned earlier the sort of the the standardized enclosed hermetic environment sort of air conditioned climate controlled how do you take a, a more technologically advanced form of architecture and ensure that you have that connection to environment and to place um, without losing any of the sort of technological benefits so when I lived in Sydney, I loved this sense that you could be in the city, but right up against the wilderness, which was either there's the ocean that was kind of right there or the bush. And, you know, you'd go to work and you get a ferry, you'd be out and, you know, and it was and it was it was fantastic, actually. And, you know, you could walk along the shore, the harbour you know, within a few hundred yards from the city and really be very directly connected to the natural world, you know, and trees didn't grow like they do. They kind of ripped up pavements. They were really sort of strong, extraordinary things, you know, Morton Bay figs and, and so on. And I remember when I came back to London, I, I did feel disconnected from the natural world. And I, um, you know, I, I rented a tiny room very cheaply from this contemporary composer on the corner of Hyde Park. And, you know, I'd go running in Hyde Park in the mornings, but it wasn't kind of enough. It wasn't, I could never get the kind of topography. I could never get the terrain. I could never understand where I was, you know, I had no elevation. So I got to kind of Primrose Hill or Hampstead or, you know, to get it, or I'd go down to the river. And I think London is a really interesting city because it, it kind of, on one hand, um, it's, it's full of green spaces and has the river. And, and I think that, we we it's a very for me as a someone who's grown up in this country a difficult city to kind of read but i think one of the things that interests me about australians and australian architects is that they can read a landscape in a much um richer level than many of us you know and i remember i went to melbourne last year with meredith bowles and neil mclaughlin to do something and within a, a second of landing the people that we met the architects that we met were telling us about the huge kind of plateau that melbourne sat in and the shelf that went out to the sea and dropped down and they were lo locating us in this in in where we were and they, they carry that sense of kind of place with us i think our concern for the built environment is brought up from a kind of sense of historical tradition what buildings look like and i think so i think i think our dna is different here than it is anywhere else but i'm not quite answering your question because i think that there are ways that the wilds and the built environment can coexist and you know there are there are cities in the world you know brisbane is one of them it's not a very good city but the national park comes right into the city there's a finger of wilderness that comes into the city um and um you know bath is a city that all that's kind of quaint and small actually you know wherever you are you have a sense of the natural you're surrounded by a ring of of hills edinburgh is an amazing city because you can be in the heart of the city the capital of you know capital city of scotland and you can look down into the firth of forth and across the firth of forth over you know and and you are very directly connected to the place that that city is in and i think new york is a city that you feel so connected to the natural world and I think, you know, for me, wilderness and city don't have to be things that are exclusive. So 
the interesting thing that's happened in three generations is that we've gone from um, 2% urbanized to over 50%. And in you know my kids' lifetime, we'll go to 80% urbanized um, from 2%. And so we're leaving the land because we um, need to go to work in cities. And we, you know, in the developing world, we um, improve our lives by by leaving subsistence farming to go and work in the cities and we have fewer children. So it's a good thing. And, you know, environmentally, it's a good thing because the land is then re-greened. But we we leave the land behind, but we don't leave our yearning for it. And and I think that the cities of the future need to give us the connection back to the world that uh, as creatures we have left behind, you know, and and the landscape architects that I know locally, you know, work with this. So Andrew Grant um, in Bath, um, who works internationally, is really interested in this question of how do you how to, how is the city a kind of wild place, not a kind of cultivated place? And I think I think it can be actually really. I think yeah. it's, it's, it's not even just the kind of the the wild. It's the, the for me. I, I my experience of being in cities is that there my my existence is somehow too tame. You know what I like about living here is that you know i can feel the kind of grit of the world rubbing up against me you know and i can't not get muddy if i go outside and yeah. get in my car or, well this is this is one of the things i always liked about japanese architecture is it does exactly that i mean it does like things like having to go outside to walk to the loo and that that's kind right. of thing. and people think oh god why would you want to do that that's ridiculously impractical yeah but the benefits you get from the, that kind of tiny day-to-day -day interaction the outside world rather than spending 85 percent of your life indoors completely i had an argument with a student who you know we designed a house that was the caretaker's house at hook park for the aa and he did have to go outside to go to bed you know you went outside to another bit of the house and and people were like he, he was really kind of angry the sense that building <laughs> is one thing it has one controllable yeah. environment and actually that's mad you know so i think you know we can be exposed to you know, a different climatic, um, you know, uh, environment. Um, and I think we need to be, you know, really, we need to be. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's easy. Again, it's easy for us to say that sort of sitting here in the middle of the woods. But it's a lot harder when you're thinking about when you've got a city like London that's vastly, mostly sort of Victorian street terraces and that kind of thing. How do, and also is hugely urban sprawled compared to most capital cities. You're so far from any kind of real sort of natural on, environment. On How do you scale, integrate? Well, I think on a on a on a kind of medium scale, I think that you know in this country there's still a place for the naturally ventilated. Um, thermally massive building where you control airflow yourself you know and i have i had this conversation with um uh, julian marsh who designed an amazing house in in nottingham you know and it's right in the center of nottingham and you know it's it's very environmentally responsive and yet it's not a passive house you know you have to open windows you have to adjust the ventilation you have to kind of operate it like you would a kind of yacht you know open things draw things through otherwise it doesn't work and I'm really interested in that. And I think that, you know, we do obviously, not obviously, but we do the same in this house here. It's shallow plan. It's too much glazing facing southwest. And, you know, we're constantly adjusting one bit of it and feeling how it is and opening one side and, you know, drawing air through it. And I really enjoy those things. And I think in cities, we can still do those kind of things. You know, so you can live in a medium rise building in, city, in a city. Like London is generally, you know, two to six stories. And all of those buildings could and should be naturally ventilated. We, could, we should all adjust airflow. Even the offices that we live and work, that we work in, can have windows that we operate ourselves. You know, if they're thermally massive enough and the 
the envelope is designed intelligently enough to control the air path as you, you know, as you draw air across it. Our climate is so benign that it's never too hot to do anything or too cold not to do something, really. And so I think cities like London are, are prime places for us to be able to do buildings that are naturally responsive. You know? mm. And I think, you know, even in Sydney, I mean, so my mother was born in Sydney and um, no one had air conditioning in anything, in their cars, in their houses, and never even thought about it. Now... There isn't, you can't buy a car with air conditioning. You know, you can't buy an apartment or rent an apartment without, um, you know, a kind of energy hungry thing on the wall that kind of, you know, uses, uh, belches out cold air, you know. And actually places like that aren't really that hot and never get that cold. And, you know, it's kind of mad, really. There are relatively few places in the world that have such an extreme climate that that we need to really climatically control our buildings to the extent that we do. And even in places like Doha and Qatar, you can, if you're sensible, design buildings, naturally ventilate buildings around, um, uh, you know, human to deal with human comfort, mm. you know. I'm well, like that's, what, that's what Mazda, Mazda City, where Foster's was trying to do, exactly. wasn't it? Is, exactly. to, is to mix that old sort of vernacular traditional way of passively managing environmental sort of spikes effectively yeah whilst like rather than using sort of artificial high-tech means to do it i think i mean in a way i sound idealistic talking about that but i really i really believe that i mean i think that also we dumb you know that we just think we you know we have this idea that people want something but people are immensely resourceful and interested in you know being more than just passive recipients of stuff that uh, we do to them. You know, people like open windows, controlling the kind of autonomy. Our own autonomy is the most cherished and valuable thing that we mm. have, I think. Well, I think architecture seems to be falling into this sort of contemporary trap of making people too comfortable for their own good. That's right. Effectively. And that, like you say, having to manually control, open all your windows and do all, all these things on yourself by yourself, even at the extent of potential discomfort temporarily, is actually more valuable having that connection than constantly being at 18.5 degrees yeah. all of the time kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. And the, uh, there almost needs to be, like, it's so easy to sort of fall into that, especially with the, like, the building regulations saying, or workplace regulations saying, you must maintain this temperature at all times to make sure all people are comfortable and all this kind of thing. Whereas actually, and the standard level of lighting. The yeah, kind of it all has to be on. Like one of the things that infuriates me most is when you see these like vast tower blocks with lights on all night. Yeah, because there's one person still working there, or even they've just left it on because there there's no system to yeah, yeah, control yeah. that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And there's yeah. and we're losing that connection. There'd be so many simple things in terms of regulations and in terms of architecture that we can do to bring back that connection. Like you say, even within cities where you might not have a direct so much of a connection to the natural world. But you can still sort of interact with your climate and your environment. I think London is still an amazing city, though. I mean, I, I, you know, when I first lived there thirty something years ago, I used to get the tube everywhere, and I didn't kind of understand it. And quite soon after that, I started cycling in London, and to see London overland as a piece of yeah. as a kind of tapestry of squares, plane trees, sea this time of year, you know, the blossom coming out, and seeing the kind of wind as you move from East London to West London and North London to South London, you know, finding routes through the city, you know, that's the way I read the city now, and it's changed my yeah, whole perception of it. It completely changes your psychology, doesn't it? Because I was the same as you. I, I commuted for a few months by a tube and stuff and going around by tube and then switch to cycling everywhere 
and you suddenly realise a how close everything is to everything else. That's right. And you start There's nowhere f- in London you can be, you can't be in kind of half an hour. Or a bike, yeah, and you, you start know. feeling the topography, even the little bits, That's right. and like even what's going up across Hyde Park from you know yeah. one side to the other. There's a, there's a kind of significant gradient. You know, I mean. Yeah, and that that's the sort of connection that I think we need to get back, and it's it's, but it, it's such a sort of uphill battle in a way, isn't it? Sort of no pun intended, because it's there's so many things in in the way we live now that make us comfortable in one way or another, and it's so easy, and they're sort of, it's the sort of the the chocolate and appealing, uh, hedonism if you like of easy living, compared to a, a, a sort of a almost more ancient way of of discomfort and and having a stronger connection with your environment through discomfortable living, effectively. Uh, yeah, but I think, in a way, again, I'd say the optimist in me thinks that architecture is getting better. You know, I think that if, if in some ways, I think the kind of 80s and 90s were the low points, 80s, 90s and noughties in some ways, where we kind of lost the idealism of the post-war era. And I think what, although we built some things that didn't work in, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, there was there was an idealism that underpinned everything from the way we built schools, the way we built um, uh, our infrastructure, the way we built health centres and housing. And in, I mean, you could actually pin it to 1979 on, we lost that. You know, Thatcher came in, we lost all that. And um, I would argue that we learn from our mistakes. And I think that housing is much better now than it's ever been. You know, if you look at what's been built in London, Peter Barber, you know, doing amazing things with housing. There's a kind of idealism that's creeping back into our housing. This understanding that the natural world is really important and we can't banish it or banish it at our peril. You know, there are there is bits of there are bits of wilderness in London. You know, there's a kind of I think we pitched for it actually. I think Erect Architecture won it. There's a kind of bit of wilderness around king's cross you know we we're cleaning up the rivers we we although we appear in some ways to be in a bit of a kind of you know apocalypse at the moment i think that we we understand uh, uh, things are so bad we have no choice but to deal with them environmentally things are so bad you know we, we can't just chuck our battery acid in the river you know we have to kind of deal with it and i think you know i i doubt I'm going to see it in my lifetime. But I think, you know, future generations look back at what we've done. They kind of won't believe that we could be so crass as to trash just shit on our own doorstep, which is kind of what we've mm. done for, you know, yeah. for, and, and shit on it kind of consciously. So we are the only generation that has really kind of crapped on our own doorstep and understood that we're doing it. You know, whereas obviously, you know, 50 years ago, we didn't know that we were doing it. Whereas now we kind of do and we're not doing anything about it really. And it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah. Well, so things the, have to change. The, what is it? It's the, the platonic concept of a crazier where you know something Something's wrong, but you make that choice anyway. That's right. And yeah, and I think you're right. There is more of an awareness of that, and like your your work and projects like this are an example of that. But I don't think I don't perceive myself that that's filtering down to the mainstream, to big developments and that kind of thing. Like when you see a a bit of thirty story concrete frame tower going up in London, or even a, a sort of off site manufactured one going up in London with a brick skin on the outside and sort of climate controls, barely any, almost no balconies, often. Mm. Can't, can't usually open the windows meaningfully like how do we get that psychology that is in projects like this one and get that to be incentivized in large-scale developments so we have no political leadership at the moment of course um and i think that is a big problem and you know we have no central government really that has any ideology um, and also what that means is we have no local governments that are able to have any kind of ideological vision for their places and their communities. 
the most interesting work that I'm doing is where communities are kind of fighting back because they've been neglected. So, you know, I've been doing this project in West Somerset for the last four or five years where a group of people moved back to their community from London. They had kids and they realised that the local authority wasn't doing anything, so they kind of needed to. And they, through a series of grants or a series of um, asset transfers, have um, got £7 million to... Um, bring about huge change to this town in Watchit to make a place that will provide 37 jobs that will be built in a way that empowers local makers, local tradespeople, etc, etc, etc. And um, so that is an example of how you can kind of upscale this kind of thing and make places that people, you know, do things for themselves, you know, and but but I think given that is at its best, given our political regime at the moment, um, it's one could be forgiven for asking how could anything get better? You know, there is zero leadership. There is zero concern with any real issue that's of any importance. And part of the problem I have with politics, this government in particular, is the kind of crass you know, way that they diminish everybody with this presumption that all anyone cares about is, um, you know, uh, what happens tomorrow that we can't have a big vision for a better place a better society one of the things that worries me most about politics and the kind of rhetoric of this government is that we never actually talk about what kind of world would we like to live in mm. and how can we actually get the kind of world that we want to live in which is a world which looks after the place we're in and a world that looks after the people we're in and how can we provide places that have you know, uh, good education? How can we invest in our schools and invest in our housing and invest in our infrastructure? We never hear those conversations happening in central government. We never hear, at best, the kind of vision of a kind of liberal society that wants to make a play. And yet, in other parts of the world, you know, Holland or wherever, those are the, that's the kind of currency of the everyday, you know, and that's how politicians speak. And it, it kind of astonishes me that things could have got so bad in this country. And it's kind of, you know, I've never been more ashamed to be British, you know, almost to the point where I would hardly describe myself as British now. You know, I would, I, I kind of live here by, you know, in a way by accident. Both of my parents moved here from other countries. And, you know, I, I of course, have loved at best the liberal democracy and the kind of provocative literary culture we've had here. But I think our political landscape for the last few years has destroyed everything that we've worked for for kind of 50 years it feels and all we'll be doing in the rest of my lifetime is is kind of squabbling is trying to get back to where we were pre david cameron you know and mm. I, I think that's a disaster but 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 again if we take a 200 year view i think that we'll look back at this point of the kind of the nadir but also the kind of turning point so historically we know that out of an apocalypse comes something else you know and we are we are the most you know apocalyptic time in in living memory and you know things i think will have to get better you know it's just a question of kind of when and how and what type of institutions we have that allow that to happen I yeah think. well i think what you're doing you mentioned community engagement and i think that there's sort of a very strong role for that and i i sort of see that almost a solution to especially at an architectural level to all this is to, is to get power further down and closer to communities effectively um that's so right partly because local authorities aren't doing it so that place in watch that i told you about 
where there are five women set up a community interest company to redevelop that place. And I think what is really interesting, instead of it just being kind of cool artists doing something in a kind of gallery, there is also a real desire to bring the whole town with them, you know, kind of Brexit voting people, you know, people who work in the boatyards and actually make a place that works for everybody. And look, the local authority wasn't going to do it. So they've kind of done it. And and it's amazing. I mean, they've got they've got funding for this thing. We've been working on a master plan for four years. We have done a visitor centre, done you know, a couple of other things that have been publicly funded. They have had the whole of this old marina asset transferred to them. And now they've raised seven and a half million to build a facility that'll take two years to build and provide 37 jobs. And and it, it's an extraordinary kind of demonstration of, um, you know, the, the sort of potential of human nature to make change, to respond to something and just kind of do it. You know, yeah, places well, well, I think are amazing. When you give people the, the sort of the knowledge and the the control and the mechanisms mm. to do that sort of thing they they always often take it up i think do you think there's a, a even if local authorities aren't doing it themselves do you think there's a role for local authorities in encouraging people to do that sort of thing and to provide the sort of the the guidance and the mechanisms yeah. and the infrastructure to enable people to undertake those sorts of projects i do i mean housing you know we know is the most important issue of uh, the kind of in the built environment at the moment there isn't a, there is a problem with housing in that um their housing is unaffordable and the model of housing ownership is unaffordable and unsustainable you know and you know if you take the average income being 26 grand the average house price around here is kind of 500 grand you know and you can only borrow 75 grand you know it's kind of crazy and also i think that we need to rethink housing to be a kind of commodity and not um, a financial asset that a few of us will own, you know. So in the same way that, you know, there's no stigma if your children go to, of course, there's no stigma, go, go to a state school, we should live in, you know, 50, 70% of us could live in state housing. You know, if you take a model like a city like Bath, where the housing is repeated, pattern book housing, all of that could be state owned and we just lease it for, you know, however long and we might own a cabin somewhere else, you know, or an allotment or a plot that we go to in the summertime. But actually, infrastructure, Housing is infrastructure, and I think that we need to find models to rethink how we do that. And of course, local authorities are in prime position to be able to understand how they can put in place systems of um, of, of land um, and systems to do with land and systems to do with funding to deal with that. So Bath City Council has one policy to do with buildings and land, which is best financial value. They have no understanding that there might be a different model and no ability to make a kind of different, to have a different vision. Mm. And that's tragic. Similarly, you know, as in Hereford yesterday, we're doing a new building. It's a kind of community building and we need to make, you know, a new entrance into a car park owned by the county council because um it'll turn it'll have a face that you know goes towards the town and you know it's a new facility for the town they will not consider losing one car parking space even though it generates a hundred pounds a year 100 pounds a year that and we would compensate them for it i mean they're totally visionless so but at the same time they're immensely powerful you know so local authorities could trailblaze and actually show there is a different way forward a different way that we can think about how we deliver infrastructure for the people that live there and also put in place systems that allow people to be empowered to do the infrastructure themselves mm. you know well I'm, I am encouraged to some degree to that things like that are starting to happen so now that the borrowing cap has been taken off local authority building for example mm, that's right. and that they can they, a lot of them have set up their own development companies and they can start building developments that and maybe some of it is retained as social housing and some Croydon of it is sold a really good example. market yeah it is um 
But I, and I think you're right, they're incredibly powerful in being able to guide those sorts of developments and either it's releasing land or it's having this sort of strategic plan of the whole thing. Um, but I think the, what I am increasingly realizing is that they've sort of lost the knack now for the last two, maybe two or three decades of being able to do that sort of thing, like, especially since all the local authority architect departments have gone. That, and there's, there's sort of a the, the process by which local authorities produce housing and do undertake developments, there's the expertise within them, especially given how cash-strapped they are, is no longer there and they're sort of having to relearn how to do these sorts of things that's right I mean, we, it's a slow we process 50 percent of architects used to work for local authorities in the 70s mm. and now it's kind of 0.01 percent and you know the projects that we've done for local authorities have been kind of smuggled through so the how the school work that we've done um here around here and in bristol you know it's really a visionary head has worked out how to get some money to do something interesting against the odds you know and they've never been direct funded by local authorities and you know and in a way i it's difficult to kind of understand why people are so cash strapped and you know the other big change that's kind of happened is you know and we're kind of straying away from architects but all these things have a kind of architectural consequence is that there's far more money than there ever was but that money is in the hands of very few you know so organizations like amazon you know a few people earn you know 10 million and most people are on the minimum wage and you know that's kind of unsustainable so in a way and of course that company then pays very little tax so you know it'll, but so it's very difficult to understand why we have such extreme austerity in an age where there is actually extreme wealth you know i mean it's, it's kind of extraordinary and actually if we look back to the post-war years where there was a huge building boom in schools and housing you know actually we were far more cash strapped then than we are now and we could still do it i mean it's kind of extraordinary really you know, and I think also, I think in terms of housing, I think, you know, I was reading this fascinating thing about Neve Brown recently that, you know, he got together with three or four other people, middle class professionals to build their own kind of housing development in London. And they saw no reason to use any other space standards than those used by the local authority. They used the same space standards that they were using to build local authority housing, which is kind of amazing, really. So, you know, I think that we need a vision for housing and in the vision that we we have as a country for housing we talk about doing more housing and the government is talking about making it beautiful but we don't really talk about what it means to make good housing that is resilient and can be you know here for generations and also kind of really what the creative models are there is still this sense that the private sector can deliver you know and actually the private sector can't deliver housing has kind of almost never really been able to deliver good housing mm. well i think there's sort of thinking about all of this stuff that's going on is you have to incentivize people at every level within the whole system to want to produce high quality um architectural high quality buildings or or fulfill their roles in such a way that leads to that and that i've, I've sort of so i perceive things like the design and build contracts and the increasing marginalization of architects to a sort of a consultant role as sort of undermining the, de the desire of the, the core individual or group within a building project who wants to ensure design quality so do you think there's alternative models of architectural practice like architects getting involved in development themselves or architect-led design and build contracts rather than contractor-led do you think an increasing adoption of those by architects and by architectural practices would help lead to that sort of set of outcomes where you get higher levels higher standards as, as the norm yes i do very much actually and i think that as architects we're not terribly good at becoming entrepreneurial but i think we need to be i don't mean in terms of making money but i mean reinventing 
what our role is in the whole process of construction and building delivery. And, you know, for us as an organization, we're really interested in building stuff and actually really interested in what that model looks like. Um, and really interested. I mean, we most of our contracts now are negotiated contracts where we negotiate with somebody to build and we're very closely involved. And uh, they're not the adversarial contracts um, or they're certainly not design and build contracts. And I think, you know, we can, I think financially we it's very hard to make a living as an architect you know unless you do something else that's one of the reasons i had to do, do had to film when i was setting up a practice again and you know I, I would say now that doing just architecture is just about sustainable you know for me um but it's kind of hard and um you know and i think that we you know i think we must think about how else we can use our agency as people that are involved in designing um, the built environment and how we can get together with other groups of people to make shared workspaces, to think differently about housing developments that we deliver. And I think we kind of have to, actually. I think we have no choice. The days of being a reactive individual that sits in an office, the phone will ring, you get a commission, it's kind of 15% and it's a private client, what an expensive building, have gone. And we cannot allow ourselves just to be marginalized by big business, by designer build contracts and by you know, unthinking, uncaring, you know, governments. I think we need to take the initiative and actually reinvent our role and actually lead development, not just react to what we're given. Yeah, well, it's it's. It's almost a return to the sort of the original idea of the architect as the master builder, effectively, as the the hub of a, a set of people who are delivering a building. And this is why I mentioned architect-led design and build, which no, almost no one seems to have ever heard of, where the architect takes on the responsibility of the delivering the building, effectively, including cost. It's which, more common overseas, curiously. I mean, in America, it's more common. Yeah, I've heard here. that, and it's obviously then that you don't have the the incentive of the architect isn't to spend all the client's money and go of ridiculously course. over budget because you're liable like the, a contractor would be. It's also more cost effective because we draw differently. So the moment we draw everything in the knowledge that the lowest common denominator of contractor will build it and we have to control that, we have to presume that, so we spend a lot of time drawing stuff. And if we are building something, we draw far less. You know, So the drawings for this this studio are on that one blackboard up there. You know, That's it, it was built from that. It took five minutes to do the whole drawing. Um, and hang on a second, my phone's going. Um, just going back to that idea about um, the architect leading a designer build contract. I mean, I'm really interested in this idea of kind of efficiency. So in Switzerland, for example, where they build things that are far better, they're cost per square meter is lower than ours on average because i mean if you take in the cost of a professional the cost of the design team and everything else because builders know how to build so we draw you know we, we draw indic we do indicative drawings that set out the principle of something in the knowledge that they know how to make concrete they know how to make junctions and you know we we can well they they are far less adversarial the cost of the kind of you know the the, the cost consultant the project team the project manager the architect assuming everything is going to be built very badly is is huge here. Um, and an architect-led design and build contract obviously deals with that. Yeah, and while still giving the client cost certainty, which is obviously what the main criticism of a traditional contract is. Yeah, I mean, for many years, I've been looking with a friend of mine, with Charlie Brentle, how we will do that. What is the model that we can put together that allows us to design 
and build things mm. you know and i think interesting buildings also need that because in terms of my own interests, some of the buildings that we've done can't be understood completely before you're actually engaging at full scale with the material the materials at a kind of scale of a kind of prototype or you know or so on yeah well if i end then on what i would be the the, the only criticism i've heard or the main criticism i've heard of architect-led design and build is the extra liability you obviously take on as the architect and i think a lot of architects are scared of taking on that level of, of being given 10 million pounds to deliver a building and the sort of potential uh, implications of that if it goes wrong so what, what what would you say to most practices who might be thinking of taking on an architect-led design and build who are nervous of that level of liability i think that we've always been very good at pushing risk onto other people and that's a kind of conceit and i think we need to own some of that risk and in a way, I think the second thing is that we need to kind of grow up and understand that if we're going to thrive, we need to do more than kind of just style buildings. And some of that is thinking intelligently and cleverly about how we actually make them happen. And I think I think that that is a kind of creative thing as well. It isn't just a kind of procedural you know, thing. Actually, it's really interesting and really kind of empowering understanding how we can make buildings happen. And I think we just need to own that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Well, on that distinctly entrepreneurial note, we'll uh, end it there. Piers Taylor, thank you very much. Thank you.